Good morning. The reading this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and that can be found in the Pew Bibles, page 1183, page 1183. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatments of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Oh, you're all lively, you're all awake. Marvellous. Now, uh, page 1183, keep that open, because that, uh, I won't refer directly to the Bible verses at the beginning, I'll refer to them at the end a bit more, but it'd be useful if you had the Bible open at um, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, as it says up there, Um, because it'll help you when you'll see what I'm talking about in that first part. Um, Let's just pray for a minute. Lord... We heard that image about the mustard seed just now, and we pray you'll take my little words like that little mustard seed, and you'll help them grow in our hearts and in my heart through the power of your Holy Spirit and to your glory, Jesus. Amen. So we're thinking about freedom, and I always remember that song by Richie Haven's Freedom when I must say this, but of course, you're too young to know what I'm talking about. That was Woodstock, and he went, (laughs) and he sung about freedom. Anyway. It's about freedom from human rules in our look at Colossians here, chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Uh, it's, it's this series on Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae. And um, Colossae's in Turkey. Has anyone ever been there? I, I'm astounded. No one's been to Colossae. I haven't, actually. Well, we all need to go. If we have enough money, it's very, we're very fortunate if we can go anywhere. We all need to go to Colossae. Maybe that's our next pilgrimage. If Rosie was here, I'd suggest it. Right. Anyway, last week, Nigel talked about the problems Paul is addressing in the church in Colossae. And he said some people were adding things to the gospel and some people were taking things away from the gospel. Um, and... This section of the letter focuses on some things people were falsely adding to the gospel. They were adding in extra things that you had to do to keep in with God. 
They were adding in extra burdens to weigh you down on your back that you had to do to keep in with God. They were restricting the freedom of Jesus' followers in Colossae by these extra rules or ways of doing things. And Paul knew the gospel is enough in itself. But you might be sitting here saying, well, what's the gospel? I'm not sure what that is. It's a funny word, and it is a funny word. It's not an everyday word. So let's just investigate very briefly what that is. So John, a close friend of Jesus, said in John 3.16, which is very familiar to you, I'm sure many of you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we have a new transformed life now if we trust Jesus and we rise from the dead like Jesus did so we continue that new life beyond death. That's the basis of what we call the gospel. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's simple, it's straightforward and it gives us great freedom. We don't have to earn God's favour by doing things we think will please him. We don't have to earn his favour. We don't have to try harder and harder each day to be a better person, a more spiritual person, a more loving and caring person to be accepted by God. Because God already accepts us and loves us since before we were born. As John says, we're welcomed into his family if we turn to him. So if you're sitting there this morning and you're trying to earn God's favour each day to make him love you more by being good, stop trying and accept his love for you as a given. Then you'll be able to worship him, help others, share your faith with others in response to his love for you with a new freedom. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. God so loved the world, first. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He loves all of us first. God loves us first. And if you're not yet a Christian and you want that kind of freedom of being in God's family following Jesus, then do chat to me or someone you trust near you afterwards. So my first point is, for the gospel is enough in itself. We are accepted and loved by God. Very simple point, because it's simple and straightforward. So anyway, the people in this area, Colossae, were falsely adding in things that they felt the Christians in Colossae had to do to be accepted by God. They were adding these extra burdens, as I said, to these Christians and distorting the wonderful freedom and relationship we have with God. And some of the things they were saying were, and you can see them if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see them there, you can only eat or drink certain things. You, can, you have to attend certain religious festivals and celebrations. You have to strictly observe the Sabbath day in a certain way. These things were important in helping, of course, the Jewish people to focus on God and show others how dedicated they were to serving God. However, they were not God. They were aids to worshipping God and reflecting him in everyday life. Faith in God is 
was the main thing. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's that verse right near the beginning of the Bible. That's what the faith in God is the main thing. The reality. But of course the people could often start to focus on these aids to worship, which Paul says are like the shadows of God, rather than worship the solid God himself through faith and trust in him. God's the one to worship, not the shadow. So similarly, maybe some of the same people may have been boasting about their deep spiritual experiences. But worshipping angels rather than God, possibly, or it might be they felt they were so close to God that they were worshipping with the angels. It's not quite certain, that bit. And these people probably went through certain procedures like extreme fasting um, for a long period of time or very long periods of prayer and they wanted others to join them in those practices because that was how to please God, that was how to, 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 to do things his way. Now of course, don't get me wrong, Jesus said you should pray and you should fast but he also says when you pray, close the door of your room, i.e. don't make a big thing of it. And he says, uh, when you fast, don't show it, show off to anyone that you're fasting. Don't let on, don't tell them. And of course, Paul, who wrote this letter himself, he, he did have a deep spiritual experience with God. And I'm sure he had more than one, but he talks about one. But he didn't want to acknowledge it as having happened to him. Because he didn't want to show off, I don't think. So when he wrote about it, he said, well, I know a man who had a deep experience of God, but really that man was him. He was talking about himself. And if you read on, you can, you can work out. He's talking about himself. Paul didn't want to puff himself up, and he didn't want to put extra burdens on people to have similar spiritual experiences of God as he did. So these unspiritual teachers were trying to put this extra burden on people's backs while puffing themselves up in people's eyes as super spiritual people who others should aspire to be like. I'll just have a sip. Fuel me on my journey here. Now you may say to yourself, and I may say to myself, well, do we do those things today? I don't know if that's relevant, you know. But I think this kind of thinking can creep into our lives. It's very subtle. We can think that we have to do certain things as a Christian. We have to follow particular styles of piety and devotion and secretly think that if we don't do these things, we're going to lose our relationship with God. We can then move into sort of, because we, we try to do them, we move into this negative judgmental spiral towards others. And they, those people don't do things quite like we do as part of their walk with God, both individuals and churches. It works on a large scale as well, because churches do things in loads of different ways, as we know. And we can start to see ourselves on the quiet as oh, we're a bit better than other Christians because of our commitment to particular spiritual practice or style of worship. And that can creep also into our everyday lives, stealthily creeping in, where, too, we don't see other people who aren't yet Christians, we don't see them first and foremost as loved by God. God loved the world first. We don't do that. 
Everyone we meet is loved by God. But we can start sneakily, start thinking, focus them as not doing what God wants and focus on their negative behaviour as we see it. We can, that can be our focus. And then we develop this secret feeling of superiority and a negative judgmental attitude towards others. And the reason I'm saying this is because I'm very aware of these temptations for myself. That's why I'm saying it. And I believe the effect this negative thinking has on us is to restrict our freedom to help others and to try and encourage them to follow Jesus. God wants us to be free, to focus on the essentials of faith in him, love for him and others, and that love that flows from our faith in Jesus. So probably the key verse in this whole passage um, is one actually that Victoria alluded to, is verse 23, where Paul says about the people who try and add things to the basic message of the good news about Jesus. They try and add things to the gospel. Um, They've lost connection with the head, Paul says about them, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So here Paul is using this picture of Jesus as the head of the body, and we're the parts of the body. So when we trust in, we believe in, we put our faith in him and try to follow Jesus, we become part of a body of people in the world who try and follow the head of that body, Jesus. Now we all know the real brains of the body, that's an MRI by the way, if you ever wondered. That's what you look like on the inside. We all know that the real brains of a body is in its head. And the body is guided by the brain, and the brain is in charge of the body. We kill people by chopping their heads off occasionally, don't we? So this, I know Victoria doesn't do that, sorry. I didn't look at anyone in particular then. Anyway, so this is a great picture though, in a more positive sense, let's be positive now. A great picture that can help us, who are a fantastic variety of Christians here this morning, and a fantastic variety of Christians all over the world to see what we're part of if we follow Jesus. He's the head. Jesus is the brains of the operation. And we're very limited in our thinking and in our love compared to him. He comes to live in us through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides and helps us each day, just like the nerve impulses from that brain that send messages out to the body. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us so we can be guided by him every day, guided by Jesus. And Paul makes it clear elsewhere in 1 Corinthians that this is open to all people from everywhere. All of us sitting here, if you're listening online, it's open to you, whoever we meet, from wherever they come. This is for anybody and everybody. Isn't that great? I think it's great. Aren't we greatly blessed by our loving God who ends suffering by suffering for us on the cross? Who loves us so much he comes to live in us through his Holy Spirit to help us in everyday life? Isn't that great? You're a bit quiet. Isn't that great? Come on, I want to make sure you're still awake. You could say, Amen. That's the kind of thing Christians do, isn't it? Or you could say, I agree, Andrew, you're absolutely right on that point, but don't bother with that bit. Anyway, amen, yes. So the second message Paul is giving us here, there's three messages, by the way, so we're getting near the end. 
The second message Paul is giving us in this letter is stay in touch with Jesus. Stick with the brains of the operation. Listen to Jesus, the invisible image of the invisible God. Be guided by his Holy Spirit who lives in you. Stay connected to the head of the body, Jesus. I know this is all obvious stuff, but we often forget. Just as a human body has to remain connected to the head of the body to stay alive and be guided and controlled in life, stick to the head of the body. So if Paul was standing here instead of me, and I'm sure it'd be far more exciting if he was, he would say, remain connected with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, that is us Christians, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows and God causes it to grow. Remain connected with the head. Remain connected with Jesus. That's my second point. Focus on him. If we don't focus on him, we're cutting ourselves off from the brains of the operation of life. We're cutting ourselves off from the wise and loving and just God who we want to be like and we want to serve as Christians. So Paul says, remain connected with the head. It's up there for you in red. But now I want to think, the last point now, I want to think about why was Paul so good at spotting where things can go wrong for us in our thinking and our acting about God? Why was he so aware of the dangers of these false ideas that were around at Colossae? Well, I reckon, and I can't prove this absolutely, but I reckon the reason is he probably had himself held some of those ideas before he decided to follow Jesus. Before he recognized that Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God who he'd been worshipping all those years, or trying to, in his own way. Paul says about himself in a letter to another church in Philippi, this is what he says, I was, before he became a Christian, a tribe of, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that's a Jew of Jews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, thoughtless. Very legalistic kind of approach he had. And Paul had previously had false ideas about how to please God and get close to him. He based having relationship with God on obeying rules, not faith. Before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was known as Saul. And then after he became a Christian, he became known as Paul, but not quite immediately. It seems likely, therefore, he had two names. He had the Jewish name Saul, and he had, as a Roman citizen, his Roman name was Paul. And he was a very jealous, uh, zealous Jew, but sadly, he didn't recognize at that stage Jesus as the Messiah the king of the Jews and the world. He didn't recognize that. So let's explore this a bit uh, as we move towards the end. So he, Saul was a clever student. He, he was uh, a student of a, a teacher, a rabbi called Gamaliel, who was very highly regarded. He was zealous to try and focus on keeping the Jewish law and probably emphasize the laws relating to what he ate and drank keeping religious festivals, the Sabbath, all the things he mentions. He may have even worshipped angels, I don't know, and talked of deep spiritual experiences he had. 
So he wrote, maybe from personal experience, when he said in this passage, therefore don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And he may well have also focused on religious rules and practices rather than focus on God and undertaken bodily disciplines to try and get closer to God. So again, in this letter, he writes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He says that right at the end. So Saul had a very negative, judgmental focus at that stage in his life that led him to try and stamp out people who he felt were not keeping these religious rules that he followed so closely. In his mind, he must have built up this immense dislike of those who broke the rules. And, and this developed into persecution of the people in the early church. And he was there holding the coats, if you remember, of those stoning Stephen, an early follower of Jesus, to death. It says in, uh, he approved of their killing of him, and it says in Acts 8, on that great day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, they who they'd stoned to death, and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women, and he put them in prison. So this is like an extreme example of where this negative focus takes you. Saul's negative judgmental focus on what he saw as people doing things wrong, not sticking to religious rules, led him not to try and convert them to true Judaism, he saw it, by persuasion, but to imprison, to stamp out, to kill. That, that's what he did instead. He was, he was probably thinking and talking of putting a stop to these people who were a threat to his version of Judaism. His focus was murderously, literally murderously negative and not on trying to respectfully persuade others to his point of view. And then it's on the journey to Damascus. If you know the story, you'll know this well. He's trying to capture more of Jesus' followers then he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know this well, I'm sure. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now note here that Jesus has risen from the dead. He isn't personally being attacked by Saul. But Jesus still says Saul is persecuting and I, him. And I find that quite an encouraging point because the reason Jesus says this, I believe, is because Jesus is the head of the body, as we said, of the church. And if the people of the church are being attacked like they were, are in Venezuela, is it, Jill? I think I heard that right. If they're being attacked, it's as if Jesus is being attacked because we're connected to Jesus, the head of the church. To me, that's a great encouragement um, that Jesus is there for me and cares for me and what happens to me and for you. If something bad happens to me or you, Jesus feels it too and he cares. So I find that a great encouragement. So at this stage in Paul Saul's life, he was led astray by these false ideas about himself, his 
uh, and focused on the negative and was judgmental in his thinking. He saw threats, he wanted to stamp them out. I wonder if we might sometimes be tempted to think in the same way. We might not go around killing people, but we do in our minds. We might be tempted to think in the same way about our style, our particular style of Christian faith, the way we think things should be done. We might, you might think this has got to do with me. I'm not like Saul. You might be sitting there thinking, well, if I'm honest, I can be like Saul. And it's all too easy for me to focus on the negative, to be judgmental in life, focus on those who don't behave or think in a way that I think is appropriate, focus on issues or people that distress me, and I can take the high moral ground as I see it. But Saul's reaction with that thinking was to put up walls. He erected walls. And he he didn't really relate to those people who he saw as being in error. He did it to such a degree he sanctioned murder and imprisonment to get get rid of these people, to put them out of sight as if they're behind a wall in prison, not to be seen or heard. That's what he did. But of course, what happened when he recognized Jesus was actually the God who he thought he was serving? What happened then? He realized Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God. How did Saul change? What did God do? What changed Saul? Well, after a while, he started to use his Roman name, Paul, which might, I think, have partly been to build bridges. That's my sign for bridge, in case you're wondering. To build bridges with people. Paul started thinking more positively he started to persuade rather than imprison and build bridges instead of putting up walls to get rid of those with whom he disagreed. When he went to Athens, for example, Paul was walked around the city, he was distressed at what he saw. He was upset by the idols he saw. But he doesn't smash down the idols as he probably would have done before. But he tries to reason with people about Jesus and is rising from the dead. And when, then when he speaks to the Oropagus, that's a place where they discuss lots of things in the Greek capital. He even uses an idol of an unknown god to make a positive connection, a bridge, with the people who were listening to him. In Acts 17 it says, Paul's, Paul's speaking, For I, as I walk round and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What a great intro. But here, if you look at what he's doing here, we can see Paul himself was ignorant of the God he worshipped. So he's drawing on his own experience in a sense, as he didn't realise the visible image of God was actually Jesus. And Paul tries to help others understand that the true God is Jesus who rose from the dead to give us life and he builds this bridge of understanding through use of an idol to an unknown God who distresses Paul personally so he's prepared to do that to try and reach these people he wants to build a bridge this idol though is familiar to his hearers and that's the point so he can make a point of connection so what a change we can see here from Saul to Paul, from a negative, judgmental wall erector to a positive thinking bridge builder for Jesus. 
So I think this, another of the big messages we can see in Saul and Paul's life and in this passage, which I think draws on Paul's own experience, at least to some degree, another of the big lessons we can learn is don't focus on the negative when you're going about your daily stuff, whatever you do in the week. Although there are many things in life that are wrong and distress us, as Paul was distressed by the idols in Athens, in that Greek culture, I don't think we should spend our time focusing on them, but instead focusing on the opportunities God gives us every day to help others and encourage and persuade them to follow Jesus. We should aim to be like Jesus, the head of the body, and we can learn from Saul's change to Paul as he came to follow Jesus. We should not be like Saul, the wall builder, the wall erector, the barrier builder, but Paul, the bridge builder. Walls cut off, they restrict freedom, they put up barriers, and we can all do this, especially if, in our view, these people aren't following our rules, our, our life, our way of doing things, our way of thinking. We can all do that. But bridges, they open up. They give increased freedom, they increase access. A positive bridge-building attitude can build relationships, encourage, persuade. And we will have to put up with some things that distress us, that obsess us in building bridges with others. We will. We'll have to make some compromises in bridge building, like Paul did, one in using his Roman name, um, because the name was uh, of an anti-Christian empire of Rome, that, that name Paul. But Paul did, did it to try and positively build bridges so some might follow Jesus. So let's all be bridge builders like Paul. That's my final point. So if we have the three points up now. So, if you want to experience God's freedom, the gospel is enough in itself. We're loved and accepted by God. He loves us first. Remain connected with the head, Jesus, and be a bridge builder focusing on making positive connections with people. Let's just uh, have a moment's silence and pray. Just think about this. Lord, help us now, whatever I've said, help us now to think, what, what's jumped out at me most? What are you saying to me through your Holy Spirit now? Because we want to do what you want us to do, because you're the head, and your Holy Spirit lives in us. And we're connected to you. So Lord, in this silence, just help us to listen and then to take note of what you're saying to us. And in the week ahead, Lord, help us to remember the gospel is enough in itself. We are loved and accepted by you. Help us to remain connected with you, Jesus, who is the head of the body. Help us, too, to be bridge builders, focusing on making positive connections with people. Amen.